Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. This week we have a cracker of a guest, State Emergency Services Commissioner Carleen York. On the 30th of October in 2019, Carleen was appointed the New South Wales State Emergency Services Commissioner with the responsibility of leading the Compat Agency through any storms, floods and tsunamis. At that time, and even through till today, New South Wales has had to experience the biggest flood events they'd ever seen. At the same time, if you think about the date, 2000, October 2019, in March 2020, the world, New South Wales and Australia went into lockdown with COVID-19. That meant that Carleen was freshly appointed as the leader of this agency that has over 10,500 talented and diversified volunteers all over the state of New South Wales and they weren't allowed to meet, to train or do anything. They could only do that over Zoom or something similar to Zoom. So how do you do that when the state faces the biggest emergencies in floods and storms that we've ever seen? How do you lead people in the middle of COVID-19? And how do you deal with all the scrutiny, the emergencies, the reviews, and what happens when, when things go wrong? This interview tells Carleen's story. And as I said, it's a cracker. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Carleen. Thanks, Alan. Lovely to be here. Would you just, um, I'm going to get into some of the, the questions first, uh, shortly, but you, just for the listeners, like we have listeners in, I'm surprised where they are, Belgium and Ireland and America. Um, would you just describe what you, you know, what you actually do as the Commissioner of the New South Wales State Emergency Services? Sure. So um, as commissioner for this organisation, we're the combat uh, lead agency for the response to floods, storms and tsunamis. Um, but we also have lots of responsibilities in relation to searches for missing people, uh, general land rescue, road crash rescue. We have clinical first responders, so where the ambulance can't get quickly to uh, people with medical issues more in the regional areas. Our volunteers are trained to a higher level to give that first interaction wow. of medical support while the ambulance is coming. Uh, and we support um, other agencies such with, with logistics and in incident management teams for, say, bushfires or other um, significant weather events. So we're a pretty diverse uh, group and I have approximately 320 paid staff and 10,500 volunteers across wow. South Wales. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? 10,500. And, and I think just probably highlight, highlight that point. Ten and a half thousand volunteers. Uh, 
Yes, so that must, uh, and that's that's what makes this in, this interview probably even that more intriguing and interesting, because your people don't have to work, they don't, they don't have to do what you say, um, yeah, and they don't have to turn up tomorrow if they don't want to. Um, uh, and yeah. I keep reminding myself of that, and I keep reminding my staff of that as well. It's not like running a paid workforce um, where you have uh, significant rostering, where you can pull in people depending on the need. This is about volunteers giving their time. And as you say, people listen from all over the world. So it's really uh, a positive in Australia. It's a great volunteering ethics here with um, uh, over a million volunteers across Australia um, giving their time freely to help in a range of areas. So it's great that there's 10,500 people across New South Wales who are committed to the SES, but more, more so committed to their community to help them when they most need it. So um, it is, you know, one of the roles for me is to keep them motivated and enthusiastic and well-trained so that they can come out when we need them most. Amazing. Um, do you just want to, because I'll, I'll go into the, the for, probably the, the formal questions in a minute, but... Do you want to just give, say, two case studies off the top of your head? What you know, describe Alan Volunteer One and Carlene Volunteer Two. How different they might be. Yeah, you know, right. their their background. Yes, of course. So um, we have the volunteers range from self-employed um, tradespeople, farmers, pilots, doctors. We also have police and firefighters and ambulance volunteering for our agency as well. Um, so they've got some really diverse backgrounds. We've got one of our volunteers is from the Department of Planning. Um, and so very much about um, planning the environment and what is happening in uh, you know infrastructure across New South Wales is one of our unit commanders. So he comes in, he runs the unit, he has over 100 volunteers in his um, metropolitan unit um, and goes out on deployment across the state whilst taking time off work. So we're, again, um, very fortunate to have employers or government departments allowing um, a set period, usually about five days, um, and then our volunteers work on weekends. So he's not only working for a government department, but he's then going out and yeah. helping us um, in relation to our flood rescue or whatever whatever we're doing. As opposed to, um, you know, I, I met one volunteer who is retired, and the thing with um, SES is there's no retirement age. And so this fellow had um, a, um, a finance background, um, but had retired and was also uh, very handy with the machinery. So he comes in just one day a week. I think he's around 75 years of age just to sharpen up the chainsaws for our storm work, you know, cutting down trees. Um, and helping people's property get back to how it was before a storm went through. And he comes in on a, on a Tuesday um, once a fortnight, spends the day at the unit and just makes sure all the equipment is just tip-top shape, ready for when our volunteers get the call at 11 o'clock at night. They know when they come in and they get that chainsaw, it's in perfect condition to go out. So, you know, Pretty quite good. a range of yeah, volunteers yeah. doing it for various reasons and, and always there's a role for someone um, within the organisation. That's pretty wonderful. And I think um, the hidden strength of what you're just talking about is they bring that diversity onto the onto the field when when they're there. Um, your your team has so many skills that you probably don't know till they're on the field what they've got yeah, and how they and, and very well trained too. So we have you know obviously nationally accredited training. 
um, they have to meet the benchmark about being ready and able to um, physically able to do the jobs. But they spend a lot of time training so that when they're called out, they're they're ready to go. Whether where you look at other organisations and they sort of have a, a, another job to do, and then they yes. train for certainly certain, certain um, technical expertise. But our volunteers are coming in. Um, to the training nights, doing exercises on weekends, just to make sure that they're ready to go out. So they're a really committed bunch. Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful story. So let's get into the, into your interview because what really like to lead to lead who you're leading is um, takes some pretty serious skills. And I know there's a, a background in that. So you know, for the listeners, um, Carlene is a former New South Wales Police Officer, I think joined in 1980, uh, the New South Wales Police, reached the rank of Assistant Commissioner, and I'll let um, Carlene talk about some of the wonderful things she achieved in that, but then you bring that into a into a volunteer agency. So my first question to you, Carlene, is um, what was your first experience in true leadership? And it can be any time. It, it might have been as a kid. Um, when did you really notice that person is a leader and I want to do more of this? Uh, probably later in life. So I, obviously, as you say, um, joined in 1980. And, and in those days, um, and I've been very much dedicated to equality in the workplace for women in policing, um, I just expected to have the same rights and responsibilities as anyone. And it was quite different when I joined that the, the um, police women were quite marginalised in what they could do. Um, and um, not that it was an obvious battle, but it was, you know, you always had to fight for that for that equality. Um, and so I never I never had this dream to get to a senior position. I just wanted to do my job and do it well. And then as each uh, promotion to different levels came through, I thought, oh, I could do I could do that next level. You know, once I'd had a, a year or two or whatever the time frame was to be comfortable in a particular rank that I was at, I thought, oh well, I can do that that next job. Um, but I'd had sort of some solo careers, so I'd done general duties, um, but I'd, I was also a prosecutor in the courts, and you, yep. you're really going in, prosecuting your matter, you know, dealing with the police, but not running staff too much. And it wasn't mm. until I got to be a superintendent and I won a position in forensic services running um, what was called the Criminal Identification Specialist Branch. So it was the fingerprints as well as the whole of the criminal record system across New South Wales. And I, I got the job and thought, Oh, I can do. I can do this. I've done courses and and qualifications in leadership, and you know, done police courses as external. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I went out there, and I really didn't have a lot of idea of of leading people, like not not just inspirational leadership, but just doing the management type yeah, yeah. processes. Because I never had to do it in the prosecutors. It was always done by a central agency, and rosters were organised, sick leave, any problems done by someone else. And so I remember I went to a meeting and, and I was with a, a group of the fingerprint experts and I've said, right, you know, here I am. Um, this is our first leadership meeting with the senior team. Uh, what do you want done? What needs fixing? And they all just sat there with a blank look on their face and looked at me and I thought, oh, this is not going <laughs> down very well. Yeah. Anyway, I, I managed to get through the meeting. I thought, right, that was just dreadful. And um, I spoke to one of the uh, inspectors who I sort of knew I'd prosecuted some matters he was in and I said, oh, I just sort of debriefed with him and I said, oh, that didn't go very well. I'd feel a little bit deficient. And he said, no, no, it wasn't you. It was no one had ever asked us what we thought, what we wanted okay. to do or what our vision was. 
Yeah. And so that that was interesting to me because I just thought that's what you do as a leader. Like you yeah. work with your team, you involve them in decisions and things. But I felt sorry because the team had never been asked before. So they hadn't had someone um, with my style of leadership. And it's yeah. no criticism on anyone that came before me. So that was a really good lesson in leadership is, you know, don't expect that everyone's on the same level as you and guide them through and try and help them so that you can really form the team before I start to ask them to do things. So, yeah, that was that was the first, um, I'm being quite honest, pretty unsuccessful um, example of my leadership styles at that time uh, when in thinking I knew what I was doing and and really we taught we worked with each other and taught each other that's good that's why that's a, and you covered so much in that answer really like um, what what it takes to make be a collaborative um, engaged authentic leader with your team you, yeah it's not about you it's about all everyone so yeah and it's yeah. really important in, in policing too Alan in that um, we teach a lot of place to be commanders you know, to lead, to, to know the rules and the guidelines, to follow those steps. Here's a crisis, here, here you do it. Um, but over the years, we've learned that we also have to teach them to be leaders, yeah. which is, you know, listen, listen, listen to, yeah. to your staff um, and, you know, involve them and form some relationships and really get into that leadership journey. Um, and that's, you know, a, a trait that is, you know, really important to leaders is to know when you need that command and control in policing and to know yeah. when you, you need to work with your team. You just, um, what are we, we're only a few, few 15 minutes in and you just really nailed Leadership 101 already. <laughs> so that's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. And that's the first question really that I asked you. So the next question that everyone gets asked on the show, um, what is something about Carl and York that the rest of the world doesn't know? Yeah, look, I'm pretty um, transparent, you know. Um, when people deal with me, they I am what I am, you know. I don't hide it. I don't change my style or anything like that. Um, so I tried to think of something a bit humorous about what they don't know, and I think what was when I was seven years old, <laughs> I did a painting and I won an art show and I was on the front page of my regional newspaper uh, which I was pretty thrilled about getting this prize, but regretfully never went on to a, <laughs> a career in art and certainly didn't show any skills to be an artist. <laughs> so something I haven't probably admitted to to many people. Well, thank you. We just admitted it to uh, people in Ireland and Belgium and everything. <laughs> just so. between you and me. Just between <laughs> you and me. All right. So I think, well, they're kind of the icebreaker questions and you're straight into the leadership already. But I'm in your hands now. Like this interview is about you. Um, so... How did, um, it's obvious that you it just flows out of your mouth, um, flows out of your brain, what it takes to lead people effectively. Um, and especially in the organisation now with, with a group of volunteers, it's, it's, it can't be directive, it's gotta be willingly. Um, so what's your story? What, what can yeah. you kind of, pin, can you pinpoint the different points along the way that made you who you are? Yeah, I can, um, because my career in policing, I always, um, it was quite diverse, which I'll go through a little shortened sort of history of that, and I know you've got the CV, um, but I just thought, thought that every job I did was the best job I'd ever had, and then I went to another job and I thought, oh, this is the best job. So from a very early age, in fact, I can't remember when, I didn't want to be a police officer. So I always wanted to be a police officer, and I finished school, and filled in some time and did some courses because I wasn't old enough to join the police because yeah. that I was just, and I was just filling in time. I had to get to 19. Thrilled when I got um, 
accepted into policing. And as I said before, it was quite different than I think my starry-eyed vision of policing would be. So one of my first stations was uh, Darlinghurst, which wasn't that great in the 1980s, mm. takes into account King's Cross and for those international listeners, the, the red light district of Sydney, which was pretty crime-ridden. Um, but thankfully the police force has changed because um, it was also a punishment station for police. So if they did something wrong, you know, you got sent to Darlinghurst. So yes. it was probably not the best role models. And there were 300 men and there was myself and one, one other female. Oh, my God. Was it that many, so, that, that many there? 300? Wow. 300, yeah, wow. and just me and the other, other um, female officer. So it was a pretty torrid time. It wasn't pleasant. Um, but I just didn't give in. I just, this is what I wanted to do. So I, you know, looked at some other career paths and where I could go um, and went into prosecuting, which was, you know, a great career. I really loved that. Um, did it for about 15 years. And got, I think, was where I got to meet, you know, for the first time, a lot of people. You know, you're prosecuting a lot of matters. Yeah. Um, you're working with magistrates and lawyers who, you know, it's not always adversarial. You, you are yeah. in court but not outside. And probably the first place that I learned about trust and honesty, um, you know, the, you you're working on conversations about how to deal with people's future. Mm. And sometimes, you know, you'll promise things by lawyer, I'll keep this secret or I'll do this or I'll do that. And sometimes that, that didn't happen. And and you really had to be aware of, you know, the ethics of others, the honesty of others um, and building relationships. So, um, and that was really important as when I went through my career and it was really important how you deal with your peers at yes. every level because, in policing, you go up through the, the ranks of promotion. Very early on, it was by numbers, but, uh, but after a while, I introduced it by selection on merit. But you, the, the people that I were working, my peers as an assistant commissioner, were people I joined the police force with or I worked in some of their locations. And you go through your policing career and, and it is about how you deal with those others from the first time you meet them right through to the others. So many um, times it's really important in policing to be able to not call in favours but ring someone and, and um, cut through the red tape and yeah. get things done and get support from other areas of policing. And it's how you have dealt with them and yes. what relationship you've built yes. long ago yeah. that really comes to fruition when you are a leader trying to make decisions and do the best for the community. So that was a really important lesson as I went as yeah, I went through. Yeah. So that's and, very good you've nailed that. Keep going. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, a no, really I was going to say I'd had luckily um to get to this job I'd had quite a few experiences of different leadership positions. So as I said I had about the forensics which is a for a specialist um command area. Uh looking after people who were passionate about um the types of jobs they did, the work they did, their expertise. Um, and, you know, trying to work out the strategic direction of, of forensics, trying to get money for new scientific advancements and things like that. Then I went into, I, I had a, um, and I don't mind saying it because it's it's how you act in adversity, not in success. I went for a job as Deputy Commissioner down in Victoria and I didn't get it. And uh, I got to the last five or something and they said, oh, you need more operational experience because I hadn't been out in a police station for a while. So... Mm. I saw the then commissioner and asked, could I have some operational experience? And he said, oh, you, we've got a vacancy as an assistant commissioner in Northern Region. So <laughs> a very small description of Northern Region is it runs from 
just north of the Sydney metropolitan area, right up to the Queensland border. It has about four and a half thousand police officers, 280 police stations, um, but it was some of the highest crime rates in the state. It had never met budget um, and it had a lot of sick leave, a lot of police with mental health problems because they're in regional areas, um, not getting a break, doing the same thing time uh, day after day, but also yep. not having a great opportunity for promotion or advancement unless they mm -hmm. came back to Sydney. That meant that they had to uproot their family, the kids might have been at school, um, and and there were very few vacancies. So um, that was a really good experience of creating a team. I had 12 male superintendents reporting to me. Um, they worked, some of them worked in isolation, so it was really creating a team um environment and getting them to trust each other and getting them to trust me as well um that i had some ideas i i, I often come up with good ideas i think they're good ideas they go <laughs> oh no what is it now um but i but there was one there was one where i wanted more um young probationary constables to come in and i lobbied um hr and and um the academy to get more probationary constables. I said, I've got this idea. This is how I'm going to do it. And they just looked at me with a with a a face of disbelief. And I said, Look, all I want for you is you don't talk negatively about it. You just let me go away and do it. And we ended up getting a record number of probationary constables over 300. So the response yeah. I got from my superintendents is that they said we can't handle it. That's just too many. We can't train them all. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't, I don't, I don't care. We need them. So we'll just yeah. have to work on that. So that was the next project. Um, but we managed to get the region back in budget for the in the second year that I was there, and then well into budget in the third third year. We got crime down um, through working together um, in all categories except armed robberies. And one of the reasons being is there's a lot of isolated businesses that can be opportunistic targets. But anyway, we worked on that. Um, and we got a lot of police back to work. So we started to change the attitude of um, if you had mental health, you couldn't be a police officer and really trying to get them back in um, a couple of days, a couple of hours a, a week, then a couple of days a week, and then working with those officers to put them in any position in the station um, where they could add some value and get them back in with their team, have a cup of tea, and be part of the policing family. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of success. So as a result of that, the commissioner rang me and said, I want you to go and run HR. Okay, yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't have a background in human resources, but I had been been so committed to try and help the health and well-being of our officers that I thought this is a really good opportunity. I can go in there and I can try and put these ideas actually across the state into place. And um, it was at a time, uh, again, where the attitudes were changing towards mental health and very much my submissions were about trying to keep people healthy and not have them go down into um, mental health issues. And keep them healthy through um, encouraging them to keep fit, encouraging their diet, encouraging them, um, and this is a bit backward, but to knock off work and go home and not work yeah. extensive yeah. Out overtime, extensive rest days, um, to be with their family and to live life outside the police and just to have um, some real um, break. Yeah. And then obviously... Um, uh, educating them in relation to what the nature of policing does with adrenaline, excitement, um, the demands, fear, um, you know, the um, um, 
fear of what might happen on your shift, yeah. fear of not knowing who you're going to confront and all those things really takes a lot out of um, your mental well-being. So yeah. um, ended up I um, put forward a proposal to government and got $45 million over a number of years to really set up some programs which are um, physiotherapy clinics with psychologists embedded in them, a psychologist who was great at going around educating about what happens with your cortisol and all sorts of things yeah. in your brain when you're confronted with um, traumatic situations. And it was really um, it was really mind-blowing. Like it, for me, when I first heard these lectures, and that's why I wanted to introduce them, was at an FBI course. Um, but it was like a light bulb went on in the classroom. Is Oh, now I understand. And it was a, a feeling of... Oh, my body's doing it to me. I'm not a failure. I'm not, um, you know, showing I can't cope is actually the chemicals in my brain are taking mm. over. It's mm. a natural reaction. Yeah. Um, so I might feel down today. What are my strategies for helping me tomorrow bounce back and do things like that? So there was a lot of education. So it was really, I'm really passionate about it. It was really exciting. Oh, no, keep, keep going. It's, it was um... really exciting to do it. We had um, massive reduc reductions in workers' comp claims. Yeah. I had fantastic um, assistance from our workers' comp insurers um, to persuade them to put money into these preventative mechanisms because we could show that it would save on payouts and their, you know, financial bottom line, which is important, obviously, to a business. Yeah. They wouldn't, it would not cost them as much. So, yeah, we got a lot of place back to work and, you know, had some lovely notes about um was sent into one of my clinics saying that, you know, they had actually written out, an officer had written out her suicide note yeah. um, and it had come into the centre and gone through our eight-week course um, and that was, you know, she was now writing it 12 months later and said she's now got a promotion, she's got a new partner, wow. she feels so good and thank you very much. And, you know, we got quite a few of those letters and I know there's a lot of people that were positively affected, so it made it all... Um, worthwhile. So, so at that stage, can, can I ask um, you just a question about yes. that? I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to some a lot. There's so many little rabbit warrens and everything you're saying, but I'm just letting you go because it's just wonderful to hear. But when you talked about um, you introduced this 45 million dollar program and you had physios and psychologists working together, is is that what's um, known as the Recon program? Is that yeah. that program? Yeah, it was. Um, so. Just from me personally, um, once I learned about that recon program, like my wife went to that recon program, um, who, who you know, um, but so many of my staff were told by their own personal doctors, you know, especially young, slight humans, male or female, that, you know, they, could, they would never be able to wear a police belt again because of the injuries to their backs um, from carrying that weight. Then they go to your recon program. I didn't know you were the catalyst of it. Yeah. Um, every one of them was taught exercises to make them physically fit again. And every one of those people that we sent there are still working today. So yeah. you, you've, you, you, you've hit it out of the park with, and I didn't know it was you that did that. So um, it's, a, it's a very special program. Yeah, it is a very special program. It wasn't all my idea, though, but it was my team. And then, you know, I obviously lobbied government and the insurers to provide that. But, yeah, and look, at some stage we were having, you know, almost 100% success rate. And the, the idea was a little bit like a um, 
football team or a basketball team, if you get an injury, you know, they've got physios and they've got doctors on the sideline trying to get you back onto the court before the game finishes. And so we took that mentality Mm -hmm. into our recon centres to try and not wait, and this isn't a criticism of insurance companies, but not wait the six weeks or eight weeks before you can get approval to get an appointment, to get in to see a physiotherapist or whoever, to actually get them in within days into this program so that they their injury didn't become long-sustaining pain, yes. which often led to secondary psych injuries because they can now no longer perform their full duties back in policing. Yes. So that's yeah. why we put the psych in there to tell them, you know, these bad feelings that you're having about not being fit, not having your uniform on, they're quite normal, we get you through the program. Um, and, yeah, so so we were working on the physical injuries and then we worked out, look, why don't we put some people in with mental health in illness as well mm. so that they can do some physical exercise, which often goes when you're not feeling well. You don't want to leave home. You don't want to, you know, explain to people if you run into them in the street or the gym or, or whatever. So it was a really safe environment. Mm. It's all police officers and I'm sure that there were conversations happening between the officers that went there between themselves Boying each other up and creating new friendships. So, yeah, no, yeah, no it was it was really a, a special, like I say, a special program and a special yeah. time, which I think is still running. Yeah, I see them. I've I just finished um, the police boxing coaching this year yep. um, in the Sydney police cells down down there, and they're still there. They're there every morning. Yeah, yeah the, the recon people. So, but the, I think that's the strength of the program. And again, it's it's how your people. Um, designed it, but the physios are at a much better level than who you go to in your local shopping centre. Like yeah. they were, they were like what you described actually, a first grade football team physio that could get you back playing straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they were very skilled, and some of them, you know, did A class boarding clubs and all that sort of stuff, and and boarded in. And and the benefit too of the program was not just looking at that recon centre, but we also, um, and the education about what happens, but we also educated the managers and supervisors about trying to um, identify signs of stress in offices so that they can intervene and how to have those conversations. And also um, dispute resolution, trying to, um, you know, improve some of the manager's skills in relation to that because often conflict in the workplace can also lead to to mental stress as well. So... Um, we we went through, you know, what what area of the police and, like, it's just all areas of training, communication, and trying to embed that into the program to improve, you know, the skills of the supervisors but also the skills of the individual officers to yeah. identify and have strategies um, to be able to do it. And we also started to educate the families and friends. So, you know, because the, the, the family is the first one that will see someone who is suffering some sort of stress. Yes. Mental yeah. health I'm talking about, not just yeah. physical. Um, but perhaps I don't know who to contact, who to ring or what to do about it. So we sent a lot of information home to the families as well, um, particularly when they were joining as a probationary constable to sort of pre-warn them that this could happen. But if you do certain things, you know, your family member will be happy and healthy for a long time in, in despite um, some of the things that they will have to deal with through a policing career. It's so... Um... I'm interviewing a lot of leaders um, through this show and, and, you know, you and I have both worked with a lot of leaders, but I don't think I've ever really heard anyone talk about it as well as you're talking about it now, as so openly. Um, like, it, it just makes sense 
with how you're talking about it. So thank you for sharing that. So so there's some things I do want to go back with, but I but I don't want to interrupt your flow. So you're in the HR command, you're assistant commissioner. Yeah, I was in the HR command, and I was thrilled because um, there was a HR award of the year that I won the top HR Australian. Oh, wow. um, practitioner of the year. Yeah, that was pretty exceptional because I could have won the HR Apprentice of the Year. It was in about <laughs> the first year. Um, uh, because, as I said, I didn't have any formal um, lessons of education, but obviously had management, leadership positions, and really, you know, I think really cared about people and tried to make the organisation a better place. Um, and that, that, that was a real thrill, and that was based on some of the programs that we've just talked about. Um, so... Uh, with that, so I'd done specialist forensics, I'd done operational now, I'd done northern region and I'd done um, HR and the New South Wales Police Force for those listening. Uh, and in those days, I think they've got more now, I have lost track of the numbers, but they had about 20 to 21,000 um, people employed. Yeah. So it was a big HR department um, to run. And I thought, what will I do? And I didn't, I didn't get another promotion. And there was a new executive team um, put in place. And, you know, you know that they're going to be there for four or five years. And this job at um, State Emergency Service came up and I thought, well, I, you know, I need a challenge. Um, it was a bit scary to step out of policing to be mm. there over 35 years. Yeah, pretty brave. A bit brave uh, <laughs> or silly, but it turned out fine. Um, and I put in for this job and... Um, I thought, oh, that'd, that'd be really good because it was a small agency. It was in the time of um, bushfires and drought. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, very well remember where floods, storms and tsunamis. It was a pretty safe space to step into. And I thought, well, I have had volunteers, um, particularly in my um, operational um, duty is up in Northern Region, work with a lot of volunteer agencies in emergency management because that was another thing about Northern Region. It's got... Well, at that time, it had the most emergency management events with the most people to move on the eastern coast. Mm -hmm. um, and I got and I got this job, and then I realised I didn't know much about flood storms and tsunamis, <laughs> um, but knew a lot about incident management, um, and you know thought that my leadership skills could do something for the organisation. So when I came over here, look, it is quite a small organisation to run ten and a half thousand volunteers with just that many staff members. Um, they'd been through some restructures that had um, um, been forced upon them through some lack of some reduction in government funding. Uh, so they'd lost quite a bit of expertise and very much had had to just get down to response. And when we talk about emergency management, particularly in floods, it's about the the prevention. So it's about in good planning decisions where you build things, how the roads and infrastructure are, what are the evacuation routes um, in place. Then preparation, which is, you know, the flood is coming down the river, we're expecting it next week, let's get the sandbags in, let's do community engagement, let's get the community prepared for what might come. Mm. Then you have the element of response, which is quite tight and command and control driven, and then you have the handover to recovery, like helping people clean out their houses and handing over to a recovery agency. Yeah. So they had lost a lot of those skills, and, and as I say, very much in response. So I set about trying to um, bring some expertise back in, um, raise the profile of the organisation, because it is seen as a smaller organisation um, to the other uh, emergency service organisations, and 
bring back that expertise and get some more positions so that we could work better with the community and local council and state government in relation to making sure that we can protect life and property as well as we can. And so that's what, what my intention over the last three years has been. Okay. That's pretty um, – let's just – so I want to go down how you did that, but let's just rewind a little bit because your story – is so much like um, other leaders who who make a difference. It didn't does doesn't happen when you become the commissioner of the SES, the State Emergency Services. Um, it's happened all the way along the little different experiences that you sort out. And I think I just want to go back to prosecuting. So do you just want to describe? Like I know what prosecuting is. Yeah. Um, in America, they might call it something else. In in Europe, they might call it something else. Do you just want to? kind of a snapshot what you did in the prosecutors yeah sure so um, when i started in the prosecuting branch um, new south wales has sworn police officers standing up in court representing the police officer in their case against the lawyers who would represent the defendant so it's in the criminal law jurisdiction um and when i first started you didn't have to have a law degree but there were internal courses that taught you the subjects as if you went to university um, and you would go and um, get the brief from the the police officer would have um, got the evidence, made the arrest, and then um, charged the defendant and placed them before the court. And it was my role then to review the brief, make sure the evidence was there, and then prosecute it and stand up in court and um, prosecute those matters. Um, so uh, it was... Um, it was for me at a good personal time because I had now got married and I had two children as well. So it gave me the opportunity of working pretty well Monday to Friday um, and being able to juggle um, two small children in the house um, as well with childcare and all, all those um, demands that are placed upon you. So that was not one of the reasons I went there, but certainly one of the reasons I stayed for a while. And I pretty well stepped out of the promotion field whilst I was there. So I really committed into the family. Um, and then it was once the children got a bit older that I thought now's the time when I can get back in and, and start looking around at doing um, different jobs. But, you know, it was a really, it was a really good opportunity um, uh, to really understand evidence and admissibility at court, ethics, um, and assist the police officers in relation to their um, execution of their duties in court, yeah. really. So just, um, I still think you're selling that role so short. Um, how 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 many cases, like you're there Monday to Friday, how many cases would you get per day? And sometimes had you seen those cases before that day? Uh, yeah. Okay, so there, there were two types of days. There were what we call a list day. So when police charged a... Uh, an alleged offender, they would bail them for, you know, Thursday fortnight and we would go through um, often over 100 cases that day, calling all those alleged offenders in, seeing whether they were pleading not guilty or guilty. Uh, if they pleaded guilty, tendering the facts, then they'd be um, sentenced at, at the local court. Um, in those days, before the Department of Public Prosecutions, which is another government body, sort of stepped up their role, we had anything from traffic matters to murders. So the whole mm -hmm. gambit, sexual assaults, break and enters, fraud, arson, car theft, every everything you can imagine went through the police prosecutor's office. So 
we'd have well over 100, sometimes in busier courts, 200 matters a day on a list day. The other days were the hearing days where you would have probably up to eight or 10 um, hearing matters where we had gone through the list day. They had um, the alleged offender had pleaded not guilty and so the police officer and the four witnesses would come along on a later date and present their court case to court. Most often you had never seen the brief before eight o'clock in the morning. So we had yeah. between eight and ten yeah. to quickly read those briefs. And I remember um I was it was just as I was coming out of my training and it was my first day on my own and I was at Redfern Local Court and there was a, the main court happening and I was going to be in the in the back court in the second court. And I would you would wait until a magistrate sent the hearing matter out to you and you would get that and speak to the police and quickly run through what all the evidence was and then um, present it at court. And I know this day there was um, uh, eight matters. There were seven that were sort of not that serious and there was a, um, a very serious sexual assault um, allegedly committed by this male offender. Anyway, I thought, well, I won't get those because this is my first day of my own. Yeah. Anyway, luck of the draw, <laughs> I got sent out was the sexual assault. And I thought, yeah. oh, dear me. <laughs> and it ended up going for three days. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, we got the offender um, uh, committed to trial at the district court, so we had a win. But um, that was a day where I, where I really didn't think that I w was capable of doing the job. So I was thrown in the deep end and... Um, you know, I they, I got some advice and just went through what I'd done that afternoon with uh, with the other prosecutor, and he says you're going fine, that's fine, just keep going. So yeah. off we went. So I did it for another two days, and um, it just shows, you know, I I read all the other seven briefs. I just yeah. didn't read that one because I didn't think it was going to come out to the back court. So yeah. Um, yeah, some very serious matters, and I say spent a bit of time down at the licensing court. Okay, and so that's where. Um, there's prosecutions against licensed premises for breaches of the Liquor Act. Yeah. Um, there's applications for liquor licences. Um, I remember there were applications, um, one by a well-known identity, Abe Saffron, for a 24-hour licence at his licensed premises at um, Darlinghurst, um, which was, you know, in the red light area. So, yeah, there were some really diverse matters that I prosecuted and, yeah, loved most minutes of it. Well, I think um, I really, I didn't, I never knew this about you, you know, that you were there for that long, 15 years. But if you're doing that every day, sometimes the magistrate would be friendly. Sometimes the magistrate would be very difficult. Sometimes you'd have, and you've already described this, sometimes you'd have defence solicitors and barristers that were unethical. So you're managing not many though, I must say. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. Not but, uh, but not um, unethical, but difficult or um. Yeah. Uh, creative on how they got got to their outcomes. Yeah. Um, so you've learnt these skills with all these different personalities for fifteen years. Yeah. You know, in in a in a first class environment where people's lives are at stake. So it kind of tells the listeners already, and that's what I love about this program. Um, you kind of get you've already told us how you how you were built, how how you were um, created, because they're serious skills that hardly anyone has. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny though. We used to joke around because the detectives would bring a brief in, and if I, if we won the matter, if we got the offender convicted or or sentenced to uh, committed to the district court, they would say it was because of a great brief <laughs> that they had presented me. 
if we didn't get up on the matter, they would say I was a poor prosecutor in a yeah. joking way. So yeah. I, yeah. I always said I was there to help them make their brief better. So there was a bit of bit of joking around in the background. But, um, you know, when when we were into it, it was all very serious because you've got the, the um, um, you know, the victim and what they've gone through and, and how they feel that they're treated at court and what their outcome is that they want. But you've also got the, the alleged um, offender who has a right to a fair trial, has the right to the evidence being proven to a certain level. Um, and so you've got to, you know, weigh that up. So, yeah, some, some, you know, some matters you lost where you really thought you should have won it and other matters uh, you didn't win it where, um, you know, it, it's was a bit swings and roundabouts, but you you tried your best to put it, the evidence before the court. And I think um, that then helped me when I went to forensics by, you know, being in charge of the fingerprint area, introducing the DNA evidence. That was yes. when DNA was just starting when I was there and it was sort of the crest of the wave because we used to joke there was CSI Miami, CSI New York, and we were CSI Sydney. Yeah. So um, D DNA was really important and all the scientific evidence and then having the criminal records, it was really nice place for me to end up in one of my first leadership roles it's funny um you've you've hinted at it a couple of times and, uh, and you're very respectful about the seriousness of your policing job but you've, you've dropped it a couple of times now where you still have fun you have fun with your work colleagues like the detectives a bit of banter and then there's a bit of banter about csi sydney in your in your so do you want to um do you want to talk about anything about that? Because I think that's an important thing that that you obviously have in your workplace. Do you, you yeah. want to give an example of that? Yeah, definitely. You've got to enjoy, I think, what you do. If if you do a job you're not enjoying, then it's time to to do something about it. And I and I must say I'm very um kind poor with those people who just want to come to work and then whinge and complain and they don't like it. I'm very much supportive of people, you know, taking control, and this gets back to mental health as well, taking control of your life, making the decisions. It's not anyone else's fault that you're sitting there feeling um, angry in your employment or, or unsatisfied. Um, and so it's really important that people, um, you know, do the serious job of policing, but also enjoy what they're doing because you are helping victims, you are helping the community, um, and, you know, you are keep, keeping the community safe. So I remember um, another time, and you know, in a lot of my leadership talks, I I do say you got to watch what you wish for. So here I what I wanted some operational experience, and so I got a, one of the worst performing regions. So that was yeah. northern region. But I also said I'd like to you know run an operation. So um, there's a bit yeah. of obviously a bit of a meeting of senior executives in the organisation, and they gave me Australia Day. So Australia Day is a very yes. Yeah. A big holiday um, where, you know, we, we and now particularly we try and celebrate with First Nations and celebrate Australia, but celebrate for what it is. It's a great country today. And uh, but it is one. It is um, the biggest policing operation um, that we have in this state. So I thought, oh, well, that's what they've given yeah. me. I'll go off and do it. So uh, there were basically 19 different police commands that you were leading um, in preparing for the policing response, setting um, the mission of of that operation, you know, it's for people to have a good time whilst they're law-abiding, basically, on, on this day. And 
regretfully, um, alcohol consumption comes into it later in the day and particularly is, is affected by the weather and the heat and all things like that. So I remember having my last meeting with the commanders the day before Australia Day and, and they, you know, we'd been through some, I'd been through some rigorous um, cross-examination of them. Is their plans, re are their plans ready? Do they have the resources? Um, and, you know, they instructed the police about what they're doing during the day. Anyway, at the end, I says, great, off you go, go and have fun. And one of the yeah. superintendents came up to me later and says, I've never been to a police operation before where the commander said, go and have fun. <laughs> and I thought, but this is a wonderful day. You know, yes, they're yes. out there with lots of families, picnics, people enjoying themselves, all for the right intention. And, you know, the police was probably let your guard down a little bit and just, you know, have fun with the community and be part of that whilst you have that serious job of upholding the law and making sure people are safe. So, um, yeah, very much committed. And I've always enjoyed, as I say, every role that I've done in policing. And it's it's about the people I work with, the people I meet. And I suppose, you know, without going a bit over the top, the legacy that you leave behind that you hope as a leader, it is better when you leave it than when you found it. That's exactly. That's a quote straight out of the legacy book about the All Blacks. That's uh, that's straight. <laughs> no, that's my son's a bit of a rugby tragic. Appropriating <laughs> the All Blacks. Isn't it? <laughs> a, there will a... be a year when the War the Wallabies and the Waratahs have their day. Yes. Yes. Um, I want to go into the SES and everything you've done there. Um, is there something that you'd want to share where it didn't go right and how you managed? yourself and your own people to get through something when it didn't go you don't have to um this is i'm just dropping it on you but i find um um a lot of people learn from leaders like yourself how they got got through something when it didn't go right yeah okay so um probably that one in forensics i gave before but another one is when i was a staff officer staff officer to a deputy commissioner so it was at the rank of inspector and um, I was a sergeant so I was acting up and had been acting up for about 12 or 18 months whilst there was a lot of jobs being advertised and the deputy at the time thought we should give priority out to the field any positions here in headquarters could wait so that's why it sort of came in the second round of positions advertised and, and as I said I've been doing it for 18 months and so the job got advertised under a new system where you had to um, talk about the problem, then your analysis, then what you would do, and then the outcome um, of it. And it was a very rigid process. And the reason being why it was so rigid is policing had, um, um, how, how would I say it? There, there had been examples of um, um, preferential treatment for promotion to friends by yeah. um by um, selection panels, so you know, picking jobs for the boys. Um, so the police force probably went a little bit too far to the to the left to try and um, or the right to try and sort of say this is the process. So personal opinions was very much unable to come into it unless there were references um, about what people did. Um, so anyway, so I went off and and I you know it was brand new. I didn't do my homework. I didn't sort of wrote learn how I should answer those questions I thought I would go in and give um, examples of what I was doing um, but not in that 
pre-formatted format. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I thought I did pretty well because I was achieving a lot in the position and I came out and I didn't get a job. So because I didn't hit the key points that yeah, you had to go through, yeah. I didn't describe it in such a way. Um, and I'm not criticising the process, I'm criticising me because yeah. I didn't do my homework, I didn't make inquiries. I thought it was I was a shoe-in because I was doing it, I assumed and took it for granted, and it was a big shock when I didn't get it. So I rang the deputy up and said, that's it, I'm not coming back, I'm going to send my badge in. I've had oh, it. Wow. Okay. And uh, I said, this is ridiculous, you know, I, I didn't get the job and, I, you know, I just didn't act very well. And so he just said to me, it's all right, just come in and have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. So anyway, I did that. And he had a wonderful style and he was a very good mentor and he always treated people with respect. Um, he never got angry at meetings. And so I, I'd learned a lot. So I, he was this, the person at that time that I would really listen to and he took me yeah. through the process. Anyway, um, uh, there was an appeal process at the time and I, I did appeal and, and did my homework and went into the appeal much, much um more prepared, uh, more understanding of what the process was, and I did win it on appeal. Yeah. So I suppose I had short-term failure, but I had to do it the hard way, and it just showed me about the lack of preparation and the lack of awareness of what was expected of me. So that was just one example, but that could fit with any sort of example is you just can't go in and wing it. You, yeah. you just If you think that, it's just not going to work. And so... I didn't hand in my badge and had I, I would not be, you know, the commissioner at the New South Wales SES. So I thank him to this day. We're still in touch. Yeah. Um, but I have never reacted um, like a, you know, a, a in such a silly yeah, way yeah, ever yeah, since. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, um, and I think that's refreshing because we hear all these stories and, you know, it's we're human beings. We have a bad day. We get angry yeah. and we spit our dummy, essentially. <laughs> um, uh, I, I tell you, like, our ego gets in the way and and we have to cool down. So you must, it's pretty special. You're allowed, to, you're allowed to for a short period of time. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. like you said, we are all human. But if you're sort of not getting back on the horse in a few days' time, then let's have a talk about it, see what the problems are, see what other opportunities there are as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's a good story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I liked how simple you made it. Come and this is, you know, you said he was your mentor and yeah. still friends to this day, which a lot of good mentors are. Um, I like the simple line, come in and have a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and that just took the sting out of it. Look, yeah. um, we could talk all day about your policing stuff, but let's go into the SES. And you obviously had a plan. I, I liked what you said, um, uh, raise the profile, bring back the expertise um, and take back... Uh, I think there was a line to take back control of our mental health because um was it in in the SES as well was that or that might have been a policing uh, yeah. part yeah yeah that was one of the things because I was really um shocked when I got here is they have the employee assistance line which um, police have as well where you know you get five or six free phone calls to a support service so that you can talk through things and see whether or not you need to go on for more assistance or they just help you through that process and here in SES only the paid staff could get that and not the 10,500 volunteers. Then it's the 10,500 volunteers that are going out to road crash rescues, saving people in boats, dealing with trauma, finding lost kids or dementia patients, you know. Um, and so, you know, I changed that. So I didn't realise that that was an issue, but um, mental Absolutely. health needs yeah. to be looked after here. And um, 
one of the success stories is we we have got money um, from government um, to look after and improve the mental health services for all of the members of SES. When I say members, that means volunteers and staff. So um, yeah, so that was that was an unexpected part of the plan that I that I had to do. And but you know, obviously very passionate about um, trying to help them. Okay, so let's just I'm conscious of the time um, and probably everyone that's listening to this wants to hear about uh, Commissioner Carl-Anne York who is the New South Wales State Emergency Services um, Commissioner. Name three things that probably we uh, your greatest think about this in that your greatest triumphs your greatest challenges and and how you got through it. Right. Um, okay. So, and, and I'm in your hands. So, because you've okay. you've been in since 2020, haven't you? Is that right? Yeah. Um. So, uh, October 2019. 2019. Okay. Yeah. So, just had the third year anniversary, and as I said, I came into the role when uh, we had the 2019-2020 um, bushfires, which were devastating across New South Wales. Um. And so we gave. I think we supported in 90,000 hours of volunteer services for the bushfires. And so that went through Christmas and in February of 2020, the rains came and we had floods. So I joked to my brother fire commissioners that uh, we put the, we put the, the fires out, um, but it was devastating for the fire services, you know, what was happening across the state and many lives were lost and it was very sad. But then Obviously, I had to step up into a more leadership role because as a commissioner, whilst we're dealing with floods, um, uh, you know, we were the lead agency and we had to go out and help the community. Um, and so, you know, I was starting, so that I just had over the three months and, you know, I say in the new job, you just start to understand it in three months, really sort of a lot better in, say, six months. And I could start to see what I wanted to do with the organisation. There was an outdated strategic plan. Um, as I said, we were very much limited down to response. Um, and there were things that I wanted to improve in the organisation, except the floods come and we're such a small organisation that business as usual has to give way a little bit. We keep paying salaries and things, but we have our finance people, our HR, working in the operations centre, doing you know, operational roles. That's what they have to agree mm. to when they come here. So a lot of the, you know, strategic planning and all that sort of stuff just has to take a hold, which is not a great way to run an organisation. Obviously, mm. that's why I need more resources. But not only did the Fe February floods come, COVID came in March. It mm. changed mm. the whole way we did operations. So here I was with a number of um, many leadership team positions vacant, um, a, you know, cultural problem with uh, morale down, um, you know, poor feelings after a restructuring, cutting of resources. Um, part of that restructure was taking a lot of the um, regional-based zones away. So, you know, centralising a lot of that support for volunteers to locations miles away from the volunteers. Mm. But in a situation where I couldn't have team meetings, like in, in a yeah, room, um, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't travel around to see the volunteers. Volunteers always want to see their commissioner. They want to be able to talk to me, tell me what their issues are. I'd done a little bit of travel, but here we were in lockdown in the March. Um, 
volunteers are really also um, very passionate about getting together on their training nights, training days. Bang, that was all gone. Um, and their social interaction is really important to them at a community level. Yeah. And so here I was trying to rebuild and improve an organisation where I couldn't have meetings. The volunteers were all online. We didn't have Teams or Zoom or anything like that at the time. Um, and I didn't have many people in my leadership team. So managing in a crisis was um, something, a term that I used quite often. Uh, so we quickly slipped over into um, having teams, having online meetings. And in fact, I traveled the state from my office or my home, depending on you know, what level the uh, lockdown was, um, to try and talk to as many volunteers, introduce myself to them, um, allow them to have questions. Um, one thing, Alan, you'd be surprised uh, about is volunteers don't hesitate to email the commissioner direct and yeah, tell me yeah. their thoughts of, of the organisation, which was a bit of a culture shock coming from police because there's mm. a lot of people below the commissioner that uh, gets to deal with that. Um, but that was really good because I was hearing from the direct, from them directly and I was able to, you know, have a look at their issues and see some consistency across um, different volunteers and, and staff as well. Um, and so then in, uh, so there were record floods in 2020 going through COVID, a lot of questions about vaccinations, isolation, particularly how we keep um, incident management teams running when we do have to bring them back. They do have to work in an operation centre. You can't mm. run an operation in response to floods remotely. Um, so we had to make sure they were safe because if you had one of those um, incident management teams get COVID and go through, then they were isolated, I think, in the early days. It's hard to remember now, 14 days or yeah, something like yeah. that. And it was really, you know, at risk of, you know, putting our operations at risk and not being able to respond. So 2020 were big floods. 2021 came with more floods and they were record again. So that's the second record I've broken since sure. I've been here. Um, and uh, that was... Um, quite significant across the state. And then 2022, we had the Lismore floods in February, March, records broken again, unprecedented rain um, and flood levels, um, devastation across the northern rivers, not just Lismore, a whole range of towns. Um, and now we are in the biggest, still in 2022, the biggest flood event in SES history because of the every catchment west of the Great Dividing Range is in flood to some level. And it is continuing and will continue until February. So for the first time, we've had to invite international um, resources in, which the bushfires have done before, but um, SES and floods have never done it. We've used every interstate resource we could get. The February-March floods used every flood rescue operator across the whole of Australia. So that's mm -hmm. why we had to bring some more in from Singapore this time. So when you say, you know, challenges... Um, wow. They would be challenges, you know, building yeah. a team, um, you know, trying to influence government for, for, for um, resources and support and dealing with COVID, which everyone's had to deal with, so you know exactly what we're going through, but, but whilst doing many operational events, it has, it has been a real challenge and um, I think this event's been going, it's the 14th of September and, like I say, it's going to go through till probably February. Um, so now I can get out and I can go and see the volunteers, which is fantastic, um, and I do that as often as possible. Um, the, we have 
done quite a few improvements in the organisation about getting, we got some good uh, government investment through a review we did in, in relation to the 2021 clubs. And so I put some more zones in place to go back out and be closer to the volunteers and the communities. We've got uh, new equipment. Um, uh, we have, through another investment of government, got um, standardised trucks and vessels, which previously the councils used to give us. So it doesn't matter where the volunteer goes, the truck for a storm truck, for example, is the same, whether they're in you know, a Ballina or Broken Hill. Good, good, yeah. Simple um, stuff. Simple stuff simple that wasn't stuff. there. Yeah, it wasn't stuff there. That they yeah. need to do their job, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do miss the budget of policing and I do miss the resourcing of policing because I didn't realise how good I had it until I came to a smaller organisation. Yeah. Um, and so it's about, you know, trying to, as I say, raise the profile of, of SES, which the volunteers do every day. I say they, they are my best examples of community engagement and recruitment um, drivers um, that you could ever hope to have. Um, and they do a great job. So, you know, getting um, a um, leadership team in place, um, involving the senior management team, the next level in decision makings. We did a, a new strategic plan in there. And, you know, one of the bits of feedback was, well, we've had strategic plans, but no one ever comes back and tells us anything about it. So we yeah. report every six months on how we're going with the strategic plan. And we also have recently participated in the People Matters survey, which was a whole of government survey on oh, culture yeah, yeah, and yeah, satisfaction yeah. and stuff. And, and every year for three years, we've now had massive rises in positive results um, for those surveys. So something's going right. Um, and, you know, we're out there at the moment um, working, and it's just not SES, I've got to say, with, with our partner emergency service agencies as well as the interstate resources, um, but led by SES and led by, you know, really talented people out there. So yeah, it's been yeah. a um, very busy three years, which I didn't expect, as I say, yeah. if we go back to a droughts and bushfires when I started. It's interesting how you, uh, you could talk for an hour on that. That how do, how do you create a team, an effective, responsive team with strategic kind of thinking when you can't meet with them and, yeah. you've got, and you're in lockdown and you've got, crisis is happening all over the state it's um it yeah. kind of talks to itself about your ability to still make it work um yeah and look they're, they're talented people we've done some really good selections to fill up some of the senior leadership team positions they're very um um well junior's not quite you know inexperienced in relation to new south wales ses but they all work together and and without a doubt their aim is to make SES better to help the community. So once you have that sort of culture ingrained in everyone, it makes it a lot easier for me because they're doing it themselves. And they're, um, uh, I just I just finished reading um, a guy that was in charge of D Disney and he had, oh, I'm not going to bore you with the three main, but they're simple things. And you just said, they're so two simple things to work towards, make SES better and help the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's everyone can relate to that. Yeah. Um, so every it's um it's a really good point. So ha, you must have had some bad days through that. What kind of hours? Just say talk 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 me through. Like you went 2021, 2020, 2022. So let's talk about the Lismore floods in February March. 
what kind of hours was Commissioner York doing every day? They, they were relentless um, because uh, I think over the last few years, there's an expectation that the leader of an organisation will be there 24-7. Mm-hmm. And so it is really, there is a lot of pressure on on anyone in those positions to actually be there. So obviously um, during the bushfires, we had the pre, you know press conferences with Shane Fitzsimmons every day. That was expected during the the um, the floods, um, and they weren't just at Lismore. I think that was part of the problem is the floods were forecast all across the east coast of New South Wales. So, um, and it did flood in many areas: mid North Coast, um, Hunter, uh, Sydney, and down in the Illawarra. We had some really um, bad floods as well. Um, but you've just got to be there for the press conferences because it's about um, relaying the information to the community. It's about making them, uh, having them understand that someone's in charge and making them feel safe and comfortable about that. Um, so it's a really important role to be up there and to be consistent in your messaging to them and being seen to be there every day. But that means every day, Saturday, Sundays and all weekdays as well. Um yeah, you just uh, well, I probably shouldn't should take someone else's advice, but I was just there, you know, as much as I can, and and that's what's happening at the moment. I think, let's say, fourteenth of September, and this weekend that I had just now was the second weekend I'd had off since the fourteenth of September, like fully off. I just okay. I just needed it. Yeah. I just needed a break, but I've got a good team, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we had no press conferences, um, or media engagements that, um were needed and it's a little bit calmer in that we haven't got the severe thunderstorms, although there's another low yeah. um, forecast. So you've just got to take the time, I think, when you can. Um, you've, you've also, you know, as I said, you've got to enjoy your job. So I enjoy working with the people, talking with the people. I always go down to the um, uh, State Control Centre here at Wollongong and walk around and talk to the liaison officers from RFS or the New Zealand liaison officer on my meteorologist or whatever and, and walk around and just see how they're going the morale is really positive yeah. they're tired but it's really positive um and they're doing a great job and just go go around and, and help them um you know voice their concerns if they have any but you know pat them on the back and tell them that they're doing a good job as well so you just yeah it's a it's um it will end that's the way <laughs> I look at it. it will end it can't rain like this forever I can't believe, um, like, you asked me at the start of this, uh, is, is this just an audio or video um, interview? I'd, I'd love to try and make it a video interview because you're kind of describing the most confront, confrontation, confront, confronting set of ongoing emergencies that anyone's ever had to deal with. And you're just sitting here as calm as day, saying, oh, it's just another day and it will end. <laughs> so it's... Um, <laughs> So can you can you tell? Can, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say I'll tell a funny story. I was doing one of our because at eleven o'clock we have a weather briefing every day uh, whilst there's operations on, and one of my um, senior managers sent me a text saying, "Hope you're going okay. You're looking really tired." And oh. I thought, "Oh God, I put makeup on today. Come on. <laughs> I didn't feel that bad today." Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Notice, and it's nice that they care. I think that's the that's and that's the sign of a good workplace where they do care. It's yeah. it's it's not just you caring for them. I they know, care. They, they care for you. Home and having a rest, and I'm yeah. going. No, no, I can't. We're too busy. So what? Um, can you tell me one day 
So, um, we're nearly there. So uh, towards the end of it, can you tell me what Carleen York does when she's had a bad day? How do you uh, how do you gather yourself up to have another day? Um, well, I have a very um, wonderful husband um, who keeps you on track. You know, sometimes I say, I just can't do this anymore. You know, I'm, I'm really tired. I can't. And he says, you're doing a good job. It's going great. And he comes from a policing background as well. Um, so, so that's, so that's good. Um, I have a couple of wonderful kids. So I have a, um, at, at the stage where I have a seven-year-old grandson as well. So on, on the weekends, if I get to see him, it's just all about him. Yes. Um, which really, you know, when I talked about mental health before getting people to go home, enjoy their family and do things like that, you know, and a seven-year-old is lots of fun and, and great company. Um, I have a wonderful little um, dog, which funnily enough is a an ex explosives dog from the police. He failed. Okay. Um, a spring, a English Springer Spaniel. So he likes a walk. Um, and you know we're, we we just do things as a family wherever wherever we can, and that makes me feel um, refreshed, I suppose, and ready to go back. And you know the kids have turned out quite all right, even though I've had a busy working life for for many years. Um, and so yeah, so that's you know that's probably it. And I've got you know a few. Uh, close girlfriends, which, you know, when you work all the time, you know, it's not like I've met mothers at the school gate with the kids and things like that. I missed out on some of that opportunity. But I've, you know, got some really good friends from all of those places that I've worked at, you know, and catching up with um, those girls sometimes and maybe going to the movies. Can't go to the movies at the moment because I can't turn my phone off. Yeah. But, um, you know, just just little snippets of, of relief and and you know, doing other other good things. And outside of COVID, we do like to do a little bit of travel as well. But, um, you know, holidays aren't quite on the horizon. No, no, not, not with the floods happening. Um, one of the, we talk, I think you talked about, you've talked about this all the way through the interview. You've really committed to ma making sure your 10,500 volunteers see you, mm. even if that's the back of Burke or Walgett or Brewarrina. Um, you're... How do you do that? How do you? How... I don't do it as much as I'd like to, and I'm sure yeah. I don't do it as much as they would like to see me out there. But I, I'll give you an example of what my last week was. Um, so Friday week I was in Yagara. Saturday I was in Tweed and Ballina, where I had the privilege of giving out an award for yeah. 65 years of volunteering. Yeah. Yeah. Then I was in Coffs on Sunday, Wollongong Monday, Park, uh, Wagga on Tuesday and Parks on Wednesday. Yes, it's a lot of cars. So, so a lot of places but needed to be at. You know, I wanted to get out. I hadn't seen Parks and Wagga, you know, um, team out there and they've been working many, many more hours than what I'm doing. Um, and just um, getting out to see them or going to those award ceremonies where they're, they're not in the flood areas and thanking them for the volunteers. And, you know, like you said very early on in the interview, they don't do it for money. They do it for their community. They don't do it for medals either, but, you know, you can see them yeah, yeah, up, up yeah. a little bit and a smile on their face when they, you know, do get a long service award or a commissioner's, you know, certificate of recognition or whatever it is, is you know, is really good. So... Um, the only thing that restricts me is I have lots of meetings here in Wollongong and Sydney. Yeah. And so sometimes you just can't get out as much as you would like to get out. So, so how um, are you doing it? Do you do it by car or by plane? Um, most, well, um, it, it's a mixture. Um, 
the issue of driving out west is the roads aren't very good and there's a lot of cut roads and things. So that that was by um, by uh, plane. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just depends. I do try and um, take the car. I sort of live out of the car sometimes and just hit the road and, and try and um, do a few stops over a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um but again, um, I'm usually driving myself, so you just got to you just got to make sure you're not going to have an accident or do anything silly. So you just got to keep refreshed. So yeah, it spreads around. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of metropolitan locations I try and get to by car, um, but they yeah. mainly meet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you've got a bit of a restricted restricted week. And then they have um, exercises or practice um, events on weekends, and you try and get to them as well. So they do a great. You do. You, I mean, you, it's obvious if anyone that follows your social, especially on LinkedIn, just how busy you are, and, and the smiles of your volunteers and your your paid staff that, that that you're there with them. It's quite beautiful to watch. Two two last things I want to finish with. Um, your leadership after the review of the SES. Um, I have to take your hat off my hat off to you. Like you talked about, you, know, you talked about all the way through your policing career about good relationships, about treating the people with dignity and decency. Your leadership, just from a, a observation through after the review that was critical of the SES, um, how you led your people after that was so dignified, so respectful, when you probably wanted to do something else. How did you, where, where did you pull from yeah. the professionalism and the dignity to do how you led your your organisation through that, and now it's kind of like anyone watching it now. It's it's yesterday's news, and 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 the SES are are continuing to do an outstanding job. Where how, where did where did you dig to 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 do to do that? Yeah, I had a couple of days where I just couldn't talk to anybody. Um, in in fear of what I might have said, uh, you know, because mainly I was disappointed that um, but any review will come up with um, suggestions or recommendations for improvement. And that's what a review is. Mm-hmm. We do them all the time. We do lessons learned. We have a look at what we do. And so, you know, there, there's no problems with doing a review and getting the recommendations. What I really took um, some um, anger at, I suppose, is the criticism by others, not not just in the review, because that relied on evidence of of others, um, with what the volunteers did. Yes. Um, The volunteers, they were out there, they were in the boats, they were trying to save people, but they couldn't get to everybody. And we had obviously in Lismore, the community, you know, I take my hat off to them going out and saving a whole lot of people. but the the state of the weather was so against us that it was storming. The the helicopters couldn't get up. There were quite a few um, of those rescues in areas of evacuation warnings or orders. Where I do try and put the message out that sometimes if you don't leave, we can't get to you. Yeah. Um. But the volunteers they were out there, so we yeah. were trying to get to as many as possible. Like it was just overwhelming. Um, and I'm not making excuses at all. It would have been great if we could have ourselves saved everybody. But I had a, an example where I went to um, Broadwater uh, just a couple of days after the floods, and I, I was there meeting with the um, volunteers, 
looking at our unit that had got flooded, um, working with like ADF were up there as well as other agencies. And one of our um, younger volunteers came in, he was in his orange overalls, he was pretty dirty and it was 12 o'clock in the middle of the day and he says, oh, I just can't do this anymore, I've got to go home, sorry boss, I've got to go out and hose my house out. So he, that, you know, we had all those units along there going out, helping the community whilst their own houses had yes. been destroyed. Yeah. Um, but criticising them is actually cr criticising the community because that's where SES came from. Yeah. They came from well-meaning community members who joined together to make independent little groups around the state and it sometime grew into such that we joined it together as a, a professional government organisation. So they were pretty upset, um, you know, at the criticism. But again, we, t we take the recommendations um, we're working with government in relation to what does that mean for SES and other organisations. Um, and, you know, it's probably, you know, you toughen up a bit in policing, mm. really. I mean, you, you suffer criticism a, a lot more than what the SES suffer criticism in policing. Yeah. Um, and, and as I say, you try and learn from um, deficiencies or as a leader, you look in the mirror and say, could I have done something better? Could I have yeah. improved that? Um, and then next time you make sure that, Whatever it is you can change and control, you try and do it in a better way. So, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I feel I feel for the volunteers, but, um, you know, we'll we'll come out the other side. They're doing, like you say now, they're, they're doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, and different, a little bit different type of flooding, um, but just as big and just as unprecedented, I think. Yeah, I think um, that's probably the most impressive thing that I see in all the coverage of the SES since since that review, it's just business as usual. Um, everyone's is so proud of what they do, and and you keep on reinforcing. You know, ten and a half thousand of your workforce are volunteers across the state, and they're out there doing their best every day. And I think, um, per, me, me personally, to uh, the way you led in that time of difficulty, for for want of a better word when you want, probably just wanted to scream, uh, um, is, is I think you Mick Willing... Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, but people didn't see it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's all right to do that. Um, but I think uh, it kind of happened in the Mick Willing um, interview. Your dignity and professionalism is, is, a, is an example for all of us, you know, because when you're, when you're a leader... You can't be kicking. You can't be seen kicking and screaming and, and having and having blues with everyone. And I think what what we see since those floods, your level of um, cooperation and interplay between state and federal and defence force stuff is just. I don't think we've ever seen it so good. Uh, so yeah. So hats off to you because you have to be part of yeah yeah you have to be part of that making it happen because uh, it, it could have gone somewhere completely different with a different type of leader um so last i'm, I'm conscious that uh, i've made you talk too long but i think everyone i think everyone's going to enjoy how you've talked to us about it everything you've done what would be your last um bit of advice because this is a a podcast about um, leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces and which when you talk about what your goal's been, that's you um, in everywhere you've gone. What would you advise uh, um, a future leader, man or woman, um, 
uh, about how they would approach the leadership journey if they were just starting out? Yeah, well, I think um, my most important thing that I try and tell others is value everyone's opinion. You know, I mean, it's so easy to get in and make an assumption about people, like as in you can go in and take over a new position and you think, oh, they've been here for 10 years, so they must know everything about what's going on. It, it's their, their views and their opinions are really important, but they might not have that strategic view that you might want to bring in or they might do things because they've always done things that way. So, you know, encourage them to speak up, take their views listen listening is important more than talking as they say mm. um but value value others so it doesn't it didn't matter whether it was um a sworn police officer talking about operational issues or a public servant who might be viewing it externally in the organization you know having views on how we do things um it, everyone is equal to me according to me they have just chosen a different course in their career so whether you want to be a magistrate, whether you want to be an intelligence officer, whether you want to be a flood rescue operator, you know, it's just a matter of choices of what interests you and what you're good at. But it doesn't mean that you haven't got opinions on other things that are very useful to take into account. So I just think value the diversity of people because that's one of the things in your question was about diversity. Um, it, it was quite different coming from policing into the SES because the and I did do a small stint on a secondment injustice as well between the um, two agent two organisations. But looking at the diversity across the public servants is um, really amazing. Um, policing struggle to get that same diversity, and um, you know how do you get people from different cultural backgrounds or whatever the form of diversity is in. The SES also um, has opportunities for people with disabilities as well, which is not always um, possible um, in uniformed um, perspective of, of policing. Um, so that that was quite a you know a really um, refreshing um, change when I came into SES because they are so diverse. Um, but even in a you know a, a historical policing, you know, or command and control type organisation, just value who, who's there, value their opinions, listen to them, don't discount them. And the, the other thing on the end of that is don't be afraid to make a decision because that's what you're there for, to make decisions. Some people may not like it, but at least they usually like the fact that you've made a decision. Yeah, don't yeah. let the matter go on and fester, which can lead to relationship issues and different camps in different parts. So, you know, you, you you make a decision on the best information you have at the time and you can't be criticised for that. Well done. I think um, I'm not going to ask you any more questions. You've, uh, <laughs> you've been so wonderful with the content you've given our audience today. So Com New South Wales State Emergency Services Commissioner Caroline York, thank you so much for sharing and being so honest and giving with us really today so thank you for your time yeah thanks alan it was a privilege to be part of your show thank you i'll just um that'll be it for today so thank you very much well i think you'll agree we've just listened to probably one of the most gifted kindest empathetic and just genuine leader we've had on the podcast series so far 
It was really a pleasure to be part of that and just listen to all the words of wisdom and real life experiences that Carleen shared with us. I'll just summarise what she said at the end about um, if you're going to embark on your own leadership journey, what, what Carleen's advice is to future leaders. It's pretty simple, but it really, you, you don't really hear it every day. Value everyone's opinion. Encourage people to speak up because everyone has a view. Listen, listen, listen. Everyone is equal. They've just chosen a different path in their careers. Value the diversity of people. And I think the final gem she said was don't be afraid to make a decision. Sometimes that's all people want. And if you make that decision with the best available information that you had at the time, well, that's all you can do. Thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. It really was a cracker. And until next time, thank you for listening.